Welcome to the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast with your host, Mr. G. For those about to learn, we salute you. Hello, party people. It is good to be back. If you've been following Punk Rock Preschool, you know that we've been on a little bit of a break, but I promise you this week's episode will be worth it because this week, I am so excited to be bringing you an interview that I did with the Vice President of Children's Programming at PBS, Linda Semensky. And Linda has a background that you won't believe. I mean, I didn't believe it. She is basically responsible for my childhood in terms of children's television, and I am sure she's responsible for a lot of you out there, your childhoods or your children's childhood, because she was one of the first two people at Nickelodeon on Nicktoons. So that means Linda was responsible for greenlighting and sending these awesome projects through, such as Rocco's Modern Life, Doug, Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, all these amazing shows, all the way up to Angry Beavers. And then she went to Cartoon Network, and then she was working on Dexter's Laboratory and Johnny Bravo and Cow and Chicken and Samurai Jack. And then she worked all the way up until Justice League, and then she's been at PBS since 2003. But I'll let Linda tell you all about it because her mindset, her philosophy, her experiences are unlike anybody else's. And I was so happy to be doing this interview with her. I was just blown away by how smart Linda is and how experienced and all the things that she was saying about children's programming and how to make it amazing for children and make it engaging and make it fun and make sure that kids are captivated and not just staring at a screen and also to make sure kids are learning. So... I think all this awesome information that Linda has brought to this episode and to her career, I really think that we as teachers can put this into place in our classrooms and to make our classrooms even more fun, even more engaging, and to up the learning and make it just so kids are, it's like they're watching television because your classroom is so exciting and they want to be there and see what the next episode is and see what next, what kind of adventures y'all are going to get into every single day. So I'm done talking. Let's get right into this interview because it was fantastic. And this is a long episode, but it is totally worth it. So please check it out and let's get right into it. Here's Linda. Hi, Linda. So great to have you on the podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and just tell us about your very impressive, very special career in children's television? Well, thank you, Jared, and hi, everybody. My name is Linda Semensky, and I work at PBS, where I'm in charge of children's programming. And uh, the career that Jared's referring to is uh, my life in children's programming. Uh, it started when I was two, watching cartoons. <laughs> Continued on to um, my first job at Nickelodeon, where I worked in programming, followed by uh, helping to set up Nicktoons, uh, I was the second employee in the department, and uh, we developed and produced all of those early pilots, including uh, Rugrats, Doug, Ren and Stimpy, uh, Rocco's Modern Life, um, Hey Arnold. And then I left, went to Cartoon Network, where I was in programming, and I was in charge of uh, development, in-house development, and overseeing the current series. So that included shows like Dexter's Laboratory, um, Cow and Chicken, Johnny Bravo, Ed, Ed and Eddie, Powerpuff Girls, Samurai Jack, and uh, uh, Justice League. And then I left there uh, and I went to PBS Kids, where I have been since 
the end of 2003. So there you have it. So I was telling my friends about about us doing this interview and the first time that we spoke, and everybody pretty much had the exact same consensus where it's, this woman is responsible for our entire childhood. And I mean, that's how I felt, you know, the first time that we spoke. And it's just, it's amazing that all those shows that you were a part of, because we all grew up on those shows. And I imagine a lot of my audience grew up on those shows, or if there's some older teachers, their kids grew up on them. And so everybody's familiar with those. So with all those great shows that you've been a part of, what in your mind are the most important qualities of a great show? What makes a great children's television program? Well, the, the thing that we always narrow it down to when we talk about shows, it's really three key things. One of them is the characters. One is the stories. And then because we're talking about animated shows, the third for us usually is design, how it looks. But some people would say the voices, but I would say all of those things are, are really the, uh, the key elements. And if you, um, if you get, if you get most of those mostly right, you can have a pretty decent show. If you fumble on any of them, of course you, you, uh, you know, the show starts to become much less interesting. And, uh, I know that because I've worked on many pilots that you've never seen because they were not very good. So or some were good, but they just weren't series. And what each of them had was, you know, they, they either lacked the potential to tell a lot of stories or the character wasn't very interesting or just didn't look very good. So, so those really are the, the key elements of a, of a, a good show. And um, the, the hidden element, the thing that, that you will never notice, but it can make or break a show is timing. And, uh, you know, people really only know about that if they work in the industry really doing that kind of thing. But, um, you know, sometimes you watch a show and it just isn't very good and you don't quite know why. And it turns out it's because it's too slow or not timed well or or anything like that. So uh, all of those things add up to, uh, you know, to making a good show. And I think that um, part of what's interesting about the character because to me character is always one of the most important parts of it for anything that you work on and the things that have to work with the character one thing is it has to be um the character has to be somewhat aspirational you have to either want to be like that character or you want to have to hang out you, you want to you have to want to hang out with that character or you have to want to um just you know, somehow spend time in that universe that that character is from. And uh, and that's all really important because basically when you're asking kids to watch a show, you're asking them to hang out with these characters for half an hour or 15 minutes. And, uh, and so, you know, they have to really want to be friends with that character. And so, so that character has to be somewhat believable and not perfect. That's that's the problem I encounter a lot is people come in with with characters who are, you know, they've got it figured out. They're fairly together. And, um, you know, you you tend to want to watch these characters, you know, I mean, generally the nature of a cartoon is, is you know, someone misunderstands something, messes up and then has to fix it. And so, you know, if you have a character who's perfect, the messing up isn't all that believable. So they have to be sort of lovably flawed, and uh, and as long as as they have 
sort of the you know they're good qualities that make them likable and they're other qualities that make them relatable then you have a pretty good character so uh you know so then you have to think about all these things every time you look at a show and uh and then you know people don't always know how to how to get those characters right i find that the uh the characters who are the most interesting to me usually are based on real people Hmm. you know sometimes it's a creator's sibling or parent or friend and and they you know they're 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 just real enough to be believable and gettable and and funny and a little bit quirky and i I think that's all very important i love the lovably flawed i think that's a a great way to put it and i think when we were talking about this the first time when we were talking about the aspirational stuff you were saying that like a great character and the kind of characters that kids relate to the most and that they look up to like the the indicator that it's a successful character is that kids want to go out and pretend to be that character and play as that character or play reenact something from the show or make up their own little version of it so i was hoping you could just speak to that a little bit i mean you already went over a lot about the characters but i thought that was a really interesting point yeah that's we we jokingly call that the yard platform (laughs) do kids want to go out in the yard and play that character and we, uh, you know, we always knew this was something that kids did because, you know, we've all been kids and we all played characters. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, I, I played Osmonds with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> we went in the yard and all pretended we were in a big family band. And, you know, I was always Jimmy because I was one of the youngest. So, so that was me. But anyway, I, I knew this was a phenomenon. I knew it was an indicator of a show working, but... When we started um, running the show Wildcrats, we started hearing from people pretty regularly that their kids would go out in the yard and um, pretend that they were Chris and Martin. And so we started uh, referring to it as the yard platform at that point, but really just this idea that these were characters that kids wanted to pretend to be, and they, they wanted to either be them or they wanted to be with them. And uh, I, I've also noticed that with um, when you go to uh, the wizarding world of Harry Potter, mm. I first went to that when it first opened. They were really selling you the chance to be Harry or Hermione or Ron. And then I noticed that the last time I was there, they were basically selling you the chance to go to school with Harry and Ron and Hermione. You could be in their world, and but you, you'd still be you. You wouldn't be them. You'd be you in that world and i i thought that was very interesting from a marketing perspective but i i think that's all about you know the longevity of a property is if kids want to be in that world doing the things that those characters are doing and uh having fun doing that and i i feel like that's really the sign that a show works is if it can spur kids imagination and get them to go and and play and make up new stories and, you know, sort of, you know, embody the new characteristics of these characters that they like so much and, and, you know, try that out. I mean, for kids, you know, they're always imagining and playing. So this is just sort of another thing they can they can try out. Yeah, I mean, I, I love those ideas. You know, when I was a kid, I was pretending to be the Power Rangers. So similar mm-hmm. to your, your Osmond story. Uh, but yeah, the, the Power Rangers, they were... I wish it was a little more educational because when I was watching Wildcrats when I was teaching, every one of those episodes had something where 
it just takes your imagination away because I mean they're like basically turning into animals. They're basically turning mm-hmm. into whatever whatever animals are talking about. They're turning into the same things with the same powers. So it really opens up a lot for kids to just get out in the yard and pretend whatever they see a bird up in the sky, they see something on the ground, or they just saw something in the episode. They can take that whole format from Wildcrats and take those characters and pretend to be them or pretend to be with them, like you were just saying. And I totally agree that that's just a really special thing about children's programming. And the fact that you guys are recognizing that and leveraging it is is really important because kids learn by doing and they learn by playing and they learn by experimenting like that. So it's more than just sitting in front of a screen and watching. These shows mm-hmm. inspire them to get out and be active and to use their imaginations. And um, yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say sometimes when we're developing a show, um, what, you know, we'll look at a character, maybe it's the main character, and if the main character appears to be too knowledgeable about the topic and and not fun enough, we will always realize that because my one of my colleagues will almost always say, no one's going to want to play that character when they play that show. And it's a, it's a good reminder that, you know, if you don't make these characters interesting and nuanced and... Uh, and, and sort of relatable in, in the ways that you need to, no one will want to play them. And then, you know, no one will want to play the show and the show won't have a yard platform. And of course, you know, the yard platform could also be on the couch. You know, it's, we're not fussy. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, we just want to have characters that, um, you know, that we, in, in a world, really, I, I think that the world is also important. You have to want to go to that world and 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 be in that world and and you know say those sorts of things and and you know do the sorts of things that the characters are doing and and wild Kratz really has been the best example of that i think because it is so aspirational and so so your students well, they would they would turn into the animals and and play they would do all sorts of things with wild Kratz. i'd never watched it i told you before that i actually had whatever the the Kratz brothers had done when i was a kid um, the live stuff, I found VHSs of that in my attic. So uh, I, I remember enjoying it, but I had no idea that it was the same thing and that these guys have been doing stuff for for this long. And so right. when my kids were like, when I was saying, you know, we had indoor recess or something, what do y'all want to watch? They'd be like, wow, crats, every single time. And then I would just watch them be so enthralled mm-hmm. with it and then just start going and playing outside and playing in the classroom and getting our animals that we had. We had a whole set of animals through a Donors Choose project every different kind of animal you can imagine. And they would just sit there and they would talk about what the animals would do and how they would hunt and how they would look for, you know, how they would make friends and socialize. And they would say, oh, this animal has this power. Because that was something we also talked about was like animals had superpowers and what superpower do you want? It's like camouflage, for example, pretty cool superpower. So when they saw that on Wildcrats, it communicated it in a way that was fun and where they could visualize it without me having to explain it or just show them a real chameleon, but something that was really on their level. And so then they would take that and just have fun with it and, uh, and learn a lot in the process. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's, it's good to hear that, you know, that, I mean, that's how we imagine the show could be used. So it's great to hear that it actually works that way. It definitely does. Yeah. So it's, it's a really awesome show. And I guess like from there, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of educational content for kids. Wildcrats being one of those shows that kind of explores the world, really explores the animal world. But there's plenty of shows that just explore the world in different ways. You've got shows with a socio-emotional focus. You have shows that are 
literacy focused and that's a little tougher to do but when you go about creating a great show are you looking with that idea that we're going to create a literacy focused show or a socio-emotional show or a show that teaches about animals or do people just come in with ideas that have this great concept and great characters and great story and then the content kind of flows from there or do you start with like we need a show that teaches xyz and then go and try to find somebody that makes a show like that or is it more just like great story great content great characters and then the educational aspects flow from there because those vehicles are all set in place actually both things happen and mm -hmm. at all points in between sometimes we are looking for specific topics like at one point we we worked with a couple of advisors and we said okay we want you to put together for us uh a, sort of a a, a a matrix of everything that kids between the ages of two and eight would need to know all the different subject areas and all the, the different sub areas under them that, that, that kids this age need to know. And then once we had that, we started uh, mapping all of our existing shows to that matrix. And what we started to find were, you know, the, the gaps, like we found that, uh, you know, we weren't really covering any areas in the social studies framework that we had. And we found that we weren't covering informational text. We weren't even sure at that point what informational text was. Uh, so, you know, the we had the um, we, we were curious about it, though, because it was clearly a big gap on our literacy chart and we had everything else covered from different shows. So we had the, uh, the, the foremost authority in the United States on informational text, a professor named Nell Duke, walk us through what informational text was and if it could work in a show. And uh, of course, informational text is, you know, when you read for information. And we thought, well, you know, if there's no show, there's never been a show about that, let's do it. So we, uh, we had gotten a grant um, and it was to do literacy uh, a, a do a literacy show, and what we had decided was we would make it a, a an informational text show. So that is what we're working on right now. We just did two pilots for uh, covering that topic in different ways, and we've been testing them to figure out uh, uh, which one we can take to series. But that's an example of how we we find a gap and we work on filling it. And uh, we did the same thing with social studies when we realized that we really weren't covering that. We looked at all the different kinds of social studies. And then inevitably, you know, people that that create shows will say, is there anything in particular that you're working for, that you're looking for? And at that point, you can say, oh, yeah, you know, we're we, we need we need to cover the community part of social studies. And they'll say, OK, and they'll read up on it. We'll give them, you know, the framework that we have and they'll go read up on it and talk to some advisors and create a show. And, uh, and so we are working on a few of those now as well. We've got one that covers community. We've got one that looks at, um, on a very sort of, you know, three, four, five, six-year-old level, how people in other countries do a lot of similar things and do a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, a lot of advisors have said, well, you know, we don't really cover countries for kids that age. And we get that and we get why people haven't done it before, but it's a little bit of an experiment. We're going to see if this works, if the, um, uh, it, you know, if, if kids this age can understand that there are other places in the world where they do things differently, but also similarly, 
we are we're gonna get a good look at that and the person who is doing that show is joe murray who did rocco's modern life he's uh working on a show which is called luna around the world and it's uh it's about a, a couple of characters whose parents are uh in a in a sort of an acrobatic circus that travels around so it takes them to all these different places and while they're there, they will encounter the locals and they will see them doing something that is either similar to what they do or different to what they do. And they'll get a look at the culture in a particular place. And usually each city has about four episodes uh, about different things that go on there. And all, you know, all on sort of the level of, um, you know, what kind of music do they listen to here? Or, you know, what do they eat for breakfast or, you know. What do they wear? Or, you know, things like that. Uh, very basic things that younger kids would understand. But, uh, you know, even I'm learning stuff from this because there are there have been a lot of things I, I just didn't know about. It's it's pretty specific and that's been great. So so those are examples of, um, you know, where we've we've needed particular topics and we've suggested them or we've we've looked specifically for them. We have other shows where people walk in and they say, uh, you know, here's the show that I'm working on, and you know, it it covers uh, computational thinking, and here's why computational thinking is important. Kids need it because it's the first step in coding, it's the first step in problem solving, it's the first step for a lot of learning. So, you know, here's how I envision it working, and you know, these are things that we might not think of here, you know, we might not think, oh, well, you know, we better do a computational thinking show, but then, you know, for whatever reason, several people show up with them at the same time. And sometimes it's, they all see the gap on our air. Other times it's, they just realize it's important and they start thinking about it. They come up with the idea and they, they show it to us and we like it. So um, there've, there've been a lot of different approaches like that. The thing that never works, though, is if people walk in and they say, I've got this great show. You just tell me what curriculum you want and I'll stuff it in. And I cringe when people say that because it's so wrong. You know, it's like if you're creating a show that has a curriculum, it's at that same point that you're thinking of the character and the story and the look. You have to be thinking of the, the, the big idea and the big idea needs to include that curriculum or the show will never work. You can't just have an overlay of curriculum that's that just never works so yet, yet people continue to do that they so, say what do you need <laughs> see i think that's that's something that we talked about before about characters being passionate and you were saying that a passionate character it's like when the character is excited about what they're talking about that's how you get the audience excited as well right and so right. if people come in and say oh here's my character and what do you need them to be passionate about i'll just fit it in it's right. like well you haven't yeah. really thought out that character very much because that's who they are, and they need that right. needs to be totally embedded into the character, what their passions are, and that's going to be what the focus of the show is. Right. Yeah. Right. And on the, the Luna Around the World, that sounds awesome. And we did a lot of work on culture and diversity and just geography, and it was all built together very like cohesively in my classroom. But the kids love that stuff. They love learning about, like you were saying, different foods around the world, different breakfasts what people eat for breakfast and lunch and what the school day is like and what the mm -hmm. different homes look like and what their outfits look like and music and dance and art and uh, even just languages and things like that. Just the way we speak is different around the world. And my kids always found that really fascinating. So I think you got a real hit on your hands there. Um, it Oops. just, 
Yeah, it sounds awesome. I mean, I'm getting excited, and I know exactly the feeling you're talking about learning a lot as you go because there's some really interesting stuff that happens around the world that you don't quite realize how interesting or how different or how unique, and it's just it's very very cool. A lot of that, uh, a lot of that information that comes out of creating content for kids because you break it down to like the simplest stuff and you try to make it as simple as possible for them to digest. And in that yeah. process, you have to learn enough about it to explain it simply, and you end up learning quite a bit so i i think that's awesome that that you're experiencing that as well um yeah it's and, been fun it's i i learned something new on on every show and uh you know sometimes it's it's stuff i should know already but other times <laughs> you know things about it i mean i've learned a lot from wild Kratts and i've i've learned a lot from uh all the science shows because that that is just not always stuff that you're taught in school you have to be interested in it to find it out. Now you can find it out by watching the show here. And uh, when I first got here, a lot of the shows were uh, much softer in terms of their education. And, you know, they were usually focused on social, emotional. And, um, you know, at that point, they didn't really like teaching science to kids this age because they felt like, you know, science could only work if it were experiential and not taught to them. And, you know, I, I was, you know, at that point, I, I just kept looking at my son and, and the sorts of things that he would ask questions about and the things that he was curious about. And I, I would think about what kinds of shows he would want to watch and what he'd want to learn. And that had a lot of impact on me. Uh, it had a lot of impact on me going to PBS in the first place. Uh, but it also had a lot of impact on me as far as um helping me understand that kids this age were just so curious. They were so interested in all these things. And why not make these kinds of shows? As long as they were fun and interesting, there was really no problem with putting some learning in there. And uh, I think it works. I think, you know, not every show works for every kid, but I think that's okay. Right. Kids are going to have different interests and different passions as well. So like you were saying before about finding those gaps where you're you're not quite there and finding shows making and creating shows that fit in those gaps that way you have something for everybody eventually and kids can find right. that one show that really does make them get out in the yard and pretend to be the characters and play and right. so i guess with that like the right now you know kids nowadays like the media landscape is definitely shifting for them you know mm -hmm. the you got kids that now they now love watching other kids play with toys on youtube and on the internet which seems a little crazy to me you know a couple of years ago now it just seems like it's standard you know standard operating procedure for these kids but i'm wondering like how has the internet and all the stuff on the internet outside of just like all of the content all the competition just like the nature of the content that's on the internet how has that affected y'all in the children's media landscape in general and is that a route that you're pursuing we're ha like having kids be on camera doing things for the like that the kids watching would want to do or are you guys kind of sticking with the animation stuff and the stuff that just tells great stories um basically just how has that internet culture affected the children's media landscape you know it's it's interesting those um all of those those uh shorts that you can find on tv all of the unwrapping things and all of the kids playing with toys they have the same function that commercials had in the 50s and 60s. And when you think about it, commercials were new in the 50s and 60s because, uh, you know, TV was new in the late 40s. And when they invented commercials, 
the goal of the commercial was to introduce you to the concept of a mass-produced toy, also kind of a new thing at that point, and show you how to play it. Like it would give you, it would introduce to you the play pattern and, and basically say to you, you know, you can have this toy if you can get someone to go buy it for you. Uh, here's how it works. Here's how people play it. Now go get one. And so the whole language of commercials and toys and, and playing with like mass produced toys was all new at that point. And so the commercial was essentially a little public service announcement teaching kids how to play with purchased goods, essentially. And so, and they were long. I mean, some commercials were, you know, a minute and some were even longer than that. And so I, I'm always surprised by how just this, you know, this whole, and, you know, you, you would hear about kids liking the commercials, you know, like kids remember the commercials from the 50s and 60s more than they remember some of the shows. So what you see now is essentially the same thing. It's, you know, where, where, you know, it would cost millions of dollars to purchase that kind of time on, you know, on a network and show kids playing for that amount of time for a full minute. Now, you know, you have people basically taking those toys and showing all the different ways you can play with them. It just really speaks to how much kids like toys, Yeah, you know, and how much fun it is to kind of see, uh, you know, what the possibilities are. Um, my uh, my daughter, when she was little, she was really into uh, the the toys called calico critters. It's those little animals that are are dressed up, and the two of us would find ourselves, me included, looking at the uh, you know they'd make these little animations of of, of the characters uh, in the different houses and things, and we would just sit and watch them very happily. And and I I feel like I, I get that mindset. It's sort of like it's a little bit like, uh, you know, you, you're looking at a whole bun a range of things that you can do with your free time. And there's something kind of fun about that. So all of those are, are commercial. So I don't think it's as mysterious as the, the mystery is really that, you know, these people are, are doing it without, you know, anyone paying them and uh, they're not being paid for their commercials. They're just doing them because they're fun. And I think that part speaks to how much people like toys. And people like seeing the different ways you can play with toys. So I, I get that piece of it. I don't think that um, that you know I don't I don't think that's really the thing that that we would do. You know, if we had some you know money to make something, we would we would probably take a different approach. And what we've done so far uh, uh, for the for the web is is we made a, a little spinoff of Odd Squad called Odd Tube where it's one of the uh, agents from Odd Squad, um, Olympia, talking directly to the... Um, it's Olympia, right? Thanks. I had a blank suddenly. Uh, it's Olympia talking directly to the audience and the audience communicating directly with her. So, so I think, you know, when you think about what the potential is, the internet, through the ideas of, of PBS Kids it really becomes how can the characters communicate directly with the audience? How can the characters answer questions for the audience? Uh, how can the audience communicate directly with the characters and ask the questions that, that you know, they think would be funny or interesting or whatever? It, it really just becomes a way to kind of 
get some closure to sort of complete the circle. It's not just TV to audience. It's now, you know, back to TV or back to uh, the web. So, so it's, uh, from my point of view, it, you know, it's a great way to continue the dialogue about whatever topics kids are interested in. Uh, so, you know, we're working on thinking about more ways to do that, more uh, short form pieces where characters can, you know, interact directly. I mean, Odd Squad was easy because they're human. So um, I, I think we could we could do a similar thing with animated characters, though, to just take a little more time. But I, I think there are a lot of possibilities that I'm seeing with it. Um, I think, uh, uh, like, the Splash and Bubbles is done through um, uh, the Henson Digital Puppetry, uh, which is a form of motion capture. So you can have real-time conversations, the character and a, a, a human, on the web. So, uh, we, you know, we might figure out a way to do something with that. I think there are a lot of possibilities just, you know, beyond the idea of unwrapping videos and things like that. Uh, I, you know, I think something that's important to us is having a sense of humor about it, too. So, like, to me, OddTube was was all about the funny side of Odd Squad, and uh, that seemed really important. I think, um, you know, kids kids like things that are funny. Everybody likes things that are funny. Right. Except for very mean people who don't like things that are funny. So we don't program for them. Yeah, not your I, audience. No, not our audience. But I, I think that that the whole idea of, of connecting uh, things that are educational and things that are humorous is, um, you know, people aren't always all that comfortable with that. But to me, it seems so obvious. You know, mm -hmm. I, the majority of smart people I know are also funny. They just make jokes that are over everyone's heads, but you know, it. I think humor and uh, education really do go together. And you know, from from the basics of you know, kids when they think something is funny, they actually remember it better. All the way up to the point where kids can take information that they've learned and and use it to make a joke or a reference that other people would find funny. Uh, you know, those things to me are great. So, uh, you know, I'm always thinking about how our shows can incorporate humor and learning and, and you know, not act like they're two different things, but act like, of course, they go together. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I don't even want to take the very simplified, oh, well, learning is fun. You know, some learning is not fun. But, you <laughs> right. know, I want to do the, you know, learning is fun part where it's also funny. Mm -hmm. And, um you know, I don't want to do the the funny, wacky scientist with the bow tie and the crazy hair and the silly glasses thing. You know, I sort of want to do the, you know, the the approach. I want to take the approach where, um, you know, topics are just funny and interesting, but regular people can enjoy them as well. And they're funny and they're interesting. And, you know, you can bring a lot of your own interests to this. So, uh, you know, I, I try to look at things with that approach, you know, for, for preschool kids, basically. Right. I mean, I think that quick witted humor is a lot better than that slapstick humor. Um, especially like, just like comedies that I love are the ones that don't really wait for you to get the jokes. They're the ones that just keep moving like arrested development shows like that, where yeah. it's just joke after joke after joke. And it's not, it never feels deliberate. They're never delivering it in a way where, oh, this is a joke, here it comes. Like, there's some shows that I right. can't stand yeah. or some, like, comedians or actors that I can't stand just because the way they speak, it's like 
everything sounds like a joke like they don't get they don't they don't have enough faith in the audience to understand that it's a joke without like being over the top with it and being slapstick so mm -hmm. i i totally agree that there's a certain level of intelligence that goes with that kind of humor and by creating humor that's quick-witted and based on the timing and based on things like that rather than just a big you know goofy guy slipping and falling or whatever doing stuff like that doing slapstick kind of things that there is a lot more appeal to that and then when the kids do get the jokes like with arrested development for example like you watch an episode three or four times and you pick up something new each time it's rewarding it's rewarding like picking up oh i didn't catch that the first time i didn't catch that wordplay i didn't catch this and then when you do you're making connections yourself and it does trigger something with intelligence yeah i always think of bob blah blah you know, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I always thought that was pretty hilarious. And, um, but yeah, it's slapstick has its place in the sure, world. Right. I, 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 you know, but, but so does wordplay. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, um, uh, wordplay to me, that's a form of literacy. That's, you know, when sure. you start playing with the things that you're learning, that's, that represents some sort of mastery, I think. And, uh, so, you know, a show like Word Girl, always uh you know took advantage of that you know there was wordplay in that show because it was a vocabulary show and i you know I, I think that 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 you know when kids understand that you know it's like um these topics aren't sacred they're there to be questioned and they're there to be played with and analyzed and looked at from different ways you know that's when people really start to learn things is when they're not just memorizing them, but they're they're interacting with them. So for me, wordplay is is one of the best things we could do. And it, it was hard to do for um, cartoons where part of your job was to make sure that it worked in a lot of different countries because different countries have different senses of humor when it comes to wordplay. And of course, you know, wordplay doesn't always work in every language. Uh, you know, and then the translators would hate you because you know, given them a show that was filled with puns that didn't work. But here, I, I don't feel the same kind of pressure to avoid wordplay. I feel like it, it's an acceptable form of humor and, uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty good fit for us. And, um, you know, certainly the Kratz engage in it. Sometimes it makes you groan, but it's, <laughs> you know, I think it's good for kids to realize that, you know, these are forms of humor that can be played with and enjoyed. And, you know, humor is not just memorizing a joke and, and telling it. It's, it's you know, it's making up things on the spot. And a lot of cartoons, like, you know, Bugs Bunny really did do a lot of wordplay. It was a lot of, um, you know, as I was saying earlier, every cartoon really is about a misunderstanding leading to mayhem. And a lot of those misunderstandings are hearing a word that has two meanings and interpreting it incorrectly. And so I, I feel like that's, um, yeah, that's something that kids find funny. When they start to understand it, when you know when it's age appropriate, of course. Right. I think of the new, uh, the newest Winnie the Pooh that came out in two thousand nine. I think the hand drawn one, where the whole thing is about Christopher Robin leads leaves a note that says, "I'll be back soon," and Al reads it and he's like, "Oh, he was a he was abducted by the Baxen," and he's like, "What's the Baxen?" And he goes into this whole thing about how the Baxen's this it must be this monster, and that's the whole movie. Like they're they're trying to rescue Christopher Robin from the from the Baxen just because they <laughs> they misread the word. I'll be back soon. And so like, that's just an example that popped into my head, but very similar to what you're saying. And then with the interactive element that, that you were talking about before, I think that's awesome too, because like, that's like taking like the blues clues Dora model and 
upping it to the next level where it's not just waiting for somebody, but it's real time. And you're not just assuming the kids get the answer and you sit there and you pause, but it's real time interaction. Like you're saying with, with this odd tube. And I know, for example, like I never really enjoyed Dora or blues clues as a kid. I, it didn't, I mean, Dora was a little past my time, but I didn't like the waiting around for it. It never felt natural to me. But when I went to Disney world, like 10 years ago and they have the monsters Inc thing there at the monsters Inc thing, they talk to you and it's in real time. And they respond to people in the audience and it's animated things or things on the screen and they're responding to pe things that people in the audience say or they're pointing out people in the audience and saying this guy right here in the red shirt in this seat and like i just remember being amazed by that i mean like this is the coolest thing this is so interesting and that really wasn't that educational it was just very funny but mm -hmm. it was it was engaging and it stuck with me in ways that the other the other old school interactive stuff didn't quite ever really have that impact and this really did have that impact so i think it's a really awesome vehicle and i think that you guys probably will have a lot of success with it as you keep exploring it because that seems to me to be where the future of online at least the online educational stuff is headed is towards that interactive element yeah i think the the interactive piece is really great for kids learning because it, it's actually more effective in a lot of ways than TV itself is because it is interactive. You know, mm -hmm. TV is is sort of only lightly interactive, but you know, I think it can act as a storyteller. You know, getting kids interested in the characters and learning from the stories, and then you know, the the more interactive piece allows you to put yourself into it in a different way, and that's why I've always thought that any good property has to work on a lot of different platforms. I, I work very, very closely with my colleagues in interactive because I I feel like th this only works if if um, you know if if everybody's in agreement and everybody's sort of looking at things you know in, in a in a in the same way as far as you know understanding what the show is meant to do or what the property is meant to do and then all the different ways that you can use it. So, you know, in, 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 you know, in 1995, maybe you never met the interactive people, but, you know, in, in 2017, you are working next to them and you are talking every day about different things that can be done. And honestly, it's so much better for the viewers because it's really all about the, the viewer's experience. And uh, so, you know, they're, they're much more top of mind than they are if you're just making a show. And it's all about how to use these things, which is interesting, you know, and for someone like me, who's been in the industry a pretty long time, it just keeps there. It just keeps changing and there are new, new things to learn and new things to try out. It's all very, very interesting. And it's an exciting time, really. It's an exciting time to be doing this. Very exciting. And that actually transitions perfectly into my last question, which is, and we've kind of already touched upon it, but we can just wrap it up with with like a nice summary of all this, but like how has children's television evolved over the past 20 years since you were at Nickelodeon and, and working on Rugrats and Rocco's and all these other great shows and what is the future of educational television? I mean, we kind of just went over it, but I mean, in general, if you could put it into, you know, one big thought, where where is it all going? And I mean, I love hearing about how everything's so collaborative now and how everybody is very focused on the mission and focused on and working together towards that mission and everything's reinforcing itself. So this all sounds really encouraging for 
for kids and probably for parents too because it's more enjoyable for them to sit down and watch it with the kids when the when the content is so great yeah yeah well i i think that the biggest difference now from when i started is is really it's all about the audience and what we know about them so in you know when i started at nick we would the nielsen measurement that we would use looked at kids between the ages of two and eleven and we would always look at you know that full range it was all mixed together twos mm -hmm. through elevens and you know if you've ever met a kid you know that you know twos have nothing in common with elevens and, right. and frankly you know nines and elevens don't have all that much in common and twos and fives forget it you know mm -hmm. they're species practically so 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 i think half of this is that you know the the audience in some ways is um looked at differently you know we're not lumping everything together for a generic kids audience it's it's much more targeted to you know smaller groups two to fours or three to fives or or you know much much smaller groups because there are a lot more uh options now there are more channels there are more you know outlets there are more platforms there are more shows and they can all be for different groups and nobody feels like they're they're missing out i mean we still do target a fairly broad audience which we can do through making things funny but we really are for the curriculum thinking about a specific age group and so i think things are more targeted now but the other half of this is we know so much more about how kids watch tv we know more about how they watch we know more about brain science and how they interpret things um you know the the people in uh in in schools and and in labs that are are figuring this out uh they just know so much more about how the brain processes information which means that you can do a better job at teaching kids things without spending too much time on on things that don't work that well and so um so that's i think that's helped us make better shows and it's it's kept us from underestimating what kids can learn and i i think that we've offered kids more challenging shows and and like i said before we're able to put the challenging curriculum in with more humor because we know more about how they learn and i i think that's been the biggest shift that i've seen certainly um what what you know the advisors know is much different than what they knew 20 years ago or 30 years ago and i think uh i think that's pretty exciting and um you know, I mean, there may be people out there that are, are not using this information for good, but, you know, the majority of people making preschool programming really all are doing the best job possible. Uh, you know, not just PBS, but, you know, all of our competitors, you know, a few of them just want to sell toys, but the rest really want to make good shows. You know, they focus on storytelling or, or you know, different cultures. And I, I think everybody's just thinking, you know how can we how can we make the best shows and how can we make the best content and uh and and they have all of these different tools at their disposal that frankly we didn't even have 10 years ago so i i really think that's the the biggest change and, and that's pretty exciting and um i'm i'm getting to know a lot of people who have gone into developmental psychology and the sorts of things that they're trying to figure out and it's a it's a really interesting field and um you know it's it's so much more interesting than 
you know, the studies that were being done, like, in the late 70s and early 80s were all about, you know, there's too much violence on TV, and, and you know, if the kid watches this many hours, the, it has this impact on them, and, and, you know, that was, I guess it was crucial at the time, because there was a lot of violent TV on, but, um, you know, the studies have just gotten a lot more nuanced and a lot more uh, accurate now, so there's just a lot more that you can figure out, and it's more useful if you're making TV. And I think one of the more interesting things is that um, it used to be that the people making TV went to battle with the advisors. And, and there was a real war between particularly the writers and the advisors. And I, I think that the advisors have gotten better and the writers have, have uh, gotten better at working with the advisors. And there's much less of a battle now. It's, it's a lot more, um, so a lot more of a, a sort of a, a collaborative kind of situation. So I think that's crucial. And I'm I'm reminded of, of a lot of this because I'm putting together my syllabus for my uh, class this semester, which is on the history of children's television. And I'm reminded of how many decades went by where all people wrote about was how terrible kids TV was. And then in the early 90s with Nickelodeon, it ships into okay, this is better. And, uh, and and now, you know, I'm sure there are many bad shows out there, but there are many good shows out there. And people don't write as regularly about how terrible the shows are and how they're destroying childhood. They're, you know, much more um, sort of uh, uh, understanding of what the shows are doing. And, you know, the shows can be educational and funny and fun to watch and not annoying to parents, or maybe even enjoyable to parents. I've had a lot of parents tell me, you know, they love watching Wild Kratts, or they love watching Odd Squad, or Nature Cat, and, um, you know, I think that's great, because I'm a parent too, and, you know, the thing that I promised when I went into, uh, when I went to PBS was that there would be, you know, no annoying shows that, that, you know, made a parent call in from the other room yelling, Turn that down. That is the most annoying show ever because I had said those very words to my kids and, um, you know, I didn't want to make any of those annoying shows. And really what makes them annoying is the high squeaky voices mm-hmm. and the tinny music. So I swore no high squeaky voices on my shows. And, you know, maybe a few have, have managed to sneak by. But uh, for the most part, I have I have made this promise and, uh, you know, and part of it is because I am a parent and I want to make shows that do not annoy other parents. So, um, so that's, you know, I think, I think these are, these all represent, you know, the, the changes that, uh, I mean, in, in the sixties in the fifties and sixties, the general attitude about kids programming was kids will watch anything. And the truth was they would, because there was nothing else on. Right. And I don't think anybody feels that way now. I think people have real respect for the audience and want to do right by them. And, uh, uh, you know, we all, we all want to make good shows that have positive impact. That's all. And I think you guys are definitely doing it. And this is, I mean, this has been an awesome interview, really incredible stuff. I think a lot of teachers are going to benefit just from hearing this framework and thinking about how they can start incorporating these ideas into lessons and making their classroom more engaging, more fun and making kids entertained and and laugh while they're learning and all this great stuff so 
Do you have any anything that you'd like to say as we as we close out? Any plugs? Uh, will your course be available online? Because I know I would love to be able to watch lectures from such an awesome sounding uh, course. You know, history of children's programming, children's television sounds great. I, it sounds very interesting, and yeah. hearing you talk about it, you're very you know you know it all. So it's I imagine it's going to be an awesome course. Thank you. It's it's actually not online, but if you uh, you know. If you have questions for me, I'm happy to answer them. I think, uh, you know, I'd be curious to know if any of your uh, your audience does have any questions about any of this or anything that, you know, they, they you know, want to talk about in relation to this. Because I, I think having a dialogue is really, you know, a key step. And, you know, it's like I can get out and talk about all this stuff. But, you know, something I like about class is that we can talk about it. People can ask questions and... Um, I can explain things and I can hear feedback. That's something that's really important. So, you know, I don't know if your audience gets uh, involved, but if they do have questions or they do have feedback about any of this, I'd be very curious to hear more of that. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, PBS is a, uh, you know, it's a work in progress. We are always listening to people that, you know, watch us and, you know, we, listen to teachers all the time so uh, if anybody has any thoughts I'm always curious to hear more so that is uh, my request so but Jared it was really great talking to you so thank you for, uh, for connecting with me and uh, thanks for all these great questions they're really really interesting the rest of my day is going to seem much less exciting now because you know I've done all the hard work uh, <laughs> over the last hour <laughs> Yeah, I feel the same way about my day. It's going to be, nothing's going to quite top this. So yeah, it's been a great conversation. I, I really enjoy you taking the time to to speak with me, not once, but twice, and, and to do this do this interview. And the audience is going to really benefit. And if I hear anything, hopefully they will comment on the blog post when it goes up, which should be in a few weeks. And if they don't, I hope maybe they'll email me or email you, and we can go from there and get that feedback and start you know, just there's so much interesting information here that I, I really hope that people do engage with it and interact with it because it's it's been an awesome experience talking and learning from you. So I really appreciate it. So thank you for coming on, Linda. Great. Well, thank you, Jared. All right. Yep. Let's let's stay in touch. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening. And I hope you are one step closer to making the classroom of your dreams come true. Please follow us on social media at punk underscore rock, underscore pre-K on Twitter. Go to our Facebook, go to our Facebook group, go to our YouTube channel, Punk Rock Preschool. Please follow us because we are getting right back into it where we left off new episodes every week coming of the Punk Rock Preschool podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to our email list. If you want to talk more about this episode, which I'm sure you do, or maybe talk to Linda some more, you can tweet at PBS, tweet at PBS Kids. You can go through me. If you can find Linda's email address, I'm not sure if she wants me to put that out there into the public domain. If she does, I will put it in the show notes so you can count on that. And thank you so much for listening. Please leave ratings, comments, thoughts. And if there's anything you want me to discuss on future episodes, any guests that you would love me to have because Linda was such an amazing guest. I mean, I don't know how we can one-up one up this episode, but we can always try to do amazing things because that's what we do here on the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast. So... If you want to discuss further or you have any suggestions, please reach out and let's work together to change the world one classroom at a time. Until next time, keep rocking.